The following message was delivered on January 24th, 2021 at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America, located in Woodruff, South Carolina. Ministerial assistant Zachary Groff delivered this exhortation entitled Proven Living Faith on Revelation 2, 8-11. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. At Dr. Piper's request, and I'm uh, here filling the pulpit at the church, I've been going through the seven letters to the churches in Revelation. So a couple weeks ago, we looked at the letter to Ephesus, and we were told there that this church was at risk of losing its lampstand, losing the presence of the ministry, and Christ calls them to renew their love for God. And now we come to the church in Smyrna. And I want to point something out to you because it's very easy to miss. Notice the very first three-letter word there in verse 8, the word and. Interestingly enough, it's a three-letter word in the Greek, chi. This and, right at the beginning of verse 8 of the second letter, shows us that this letter is united to the first letter. Why is that important? Because the saints in Ephesus needed the message to the saints in Smyrna. And the saints in Smyrna needed the message to the saints in Ephesus. And that's true for all seven churches. But more than that, it's true for you and for me. It's true for the saints in Antioch. These letters are written to you, dear ones, just as much as they are written to the saints 2,000 years ago in Asia Minor. And so I would encourage you as we consider this text and as you read it on your own at home as well uh, during your devotional readings, that you would not receive this letter merely as if it was written to you, but receive it as it was written to you because it is intended by the Lord Jesus Christ to be both an encouragement to you and instructions in godliness. And in this letter, Christ presents some basic if X, then Y truths, some if then uh, truths, if not if man statements. Consider with me, there are certain things we could say without any controversy, I, I at least hope so, or without any disagreement here. If you were to step into a running shower or jump into a pool of water, then you would get wet. If you are sitting on my left, then you are not sitting on my right. If the living soul does not die, then it is immortal. I would think that we all agree with these if-then statements. If the first part is true, then the second part is also true. If this, then that. Christ presented these truths, not necessarily the ones about getting wet or sitting on the left or right, but he presents certain truths to the saints in Smyrna not to rebuke them like he does to the saints in Ephesus and later on in Pergamum and Laodicea and some of the other churches, but rather to encourage them as they would stare down the barrel of intense persecution, intense persecution. He even gives them a heads up about what's coming, doesn't he, in the text? We know from church history that shortly after uh, these letters would have been circulated, there was an intense eruption of persecution in Asia Minor. And Smyrna was hit particularly hard. One of the very most famous of the second century martyrs, his name was Polycarp, would have been a disciple of a man named Irenaeus, who was a disciple of John himself in our text. 
And Polycarp, at 84 years old, was sent into a kind of mini Colosseum there in Smyrna and sentenced to death because he would not renounce his faith. He would not renounce his faith. Interestingly enough, modern-day Izmir, which sits on top of the ruins of Smyrna, has been a place where intense persecution of Christians has broken out again and again ever since the first century. In the late 19th century um, and early 20th century, my forefathers, the Armenian Christians, were mercilessly slaughtered and carted off. And they had a whole hub of them there in Smyrna, what the Turks called Izmir. And just within the last 13 years or so, there have been Christian martyrs that have made worldwide news headlines having been slaughtered by Muslim militants there in Izmir, attacked while worshiping Christ, doing the very thing we are seeking to do here today. And so what is at the heart of this letter? If Ephesus received an exhortation to renew love, then what does Smyrna receive as a group of Christians about to face persecution? Christ gives them an encouragement to maintain vital faith in him. We can define faith in Jesus Christ as a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he is offered to us in the gospel. I think that's as good a definition as any. And if so, what I aim to show you this evening is that when proven through trial, the church's faith in Christ is the Christian's living faith resulting in spiritual triumph. When proven through trial, the church's faith in Christ is the Christian's living faith resulting in spiritual triumph. And we're going to consider this under three headings. First, Christ, the Lord of our trials. Second, the church's proven faith. And then third, the Christian's living faith. Look at, with me at verse eight. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the first and the last who was dead and has come to life says this. This is the big if piece of Christ's message here. He is the Lord of our trials. And if this is true, if what he says about himself here is true, echoing what was already said in chapter one, in which we read, then everything else in this letter to Smyrna will also be true. But only if what Christ says about here, about himself is true. Christ identifies himself in verse eight. Look at it with me as the first and the last. What does he mean by this? It means he's the sovereign Lord of history. Whatsoever comes to pass happens because of his decree. He is in control. He's in control not just of the big things like presidential elections and, and foreign wars and the rotation of the earth around its axis. He's also in control of the little things, children born and children lost, the death of parents and grandparents, the daily commute to work, to and from, whether or not we'll be working from home or working from the office. All of these things are in his hands. He is the first and the last. Nothing in all of history is outside of his domain and his control. He determines whatsoever comes to pass. He's even more than that actively involved in every trial we face and every triumph we receive. Hebrews 12, 2 tells us that he is the author and perfecter or finisher of what? 
of our faith. He's interested in us as individuals, is he not? He's interested in making known to us his involvement in our lives through providence and through his word. And what else does he say about himself here? Not only is he the first and the last Lord of history, but he who was dead and has come to life says this. He highlights for these saints about to face persecution, about to come face to face with the reality of death. He says, I died and I came to life. He highlights his great triumph over death, his resurrection, and we can't separate this out, his ascension into glory. That whatever they face and whatever you and I may face, he is yet king ascended and seated at the right hand of God the Father on high. After the sermon this evening, we're going to sing in response a setting of Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make thy enemies a footstool for your feet. Jesus was receiving a command from the Father to sit as royal king over all nations. And that's what he's showing us here. He is Lord even over death. He has triumphed over that. Some well-meaning Christians, and I do mean it, they're well-meaning Christians, will want to defend God and to reassure suffering friends in the midst of trials by saying things like, You know, God had nothing to do with what you're dealing with in your life. He had nothing to do with the death of your child. He had nothing to do with that earthquake that killed your loved one. He had nothing to do with losing all your money or losing your job. He had nothing to do with that wreck. And they're meaning to say that God is good and bad things he's not involved in. But let's take a step back. Of course, we know God is not the author of evil. For nothing evil could come from he who is infinitely and eternally good. We know that God is not malicious or capricious like some kind of Greek deity in the difficult things of life. But but notice what Christ does here. He, He doesn't comfort us in that way. He doesn't seek or rush to defend God by saying he's uninvolved in what's going on. No, rather, when we are staring down the barrel of persecution and dark providences, What does he say? He emphasizes his control and his involvement, his triumph and his glory. But but why? So that we might then be able to say, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil. For you are with me, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. He's reassuring them. He's preparing them. As a pastor or pastoral assistant, it would be unwise if the very first time I said, well, you know, God's in control to somebody was when they lose a loved one. I better be telling them that over and over again, preparing them for what's coming as a pastor. Each of us with each other need to be doing that, right? Because that's what Christ is doing here. The persecution hasn't broken out yet. The 10 days are coming. But even now, he's coming to these dear saints. He's saying, reminding them, I am the first and the last. I died and yet have come to life. And so we see here in verse eight, Christ, the Lord of our trials. If this is true, then and only then will the rest be true. So having considered that, let's move on then to the church's proven faith. Looking at verses nine and the first half of verse 10. We see the church's proven faith through suffering, fearlessness, and faithfulness. 
And this is a proven faith. That's, that's important for, uh, for what I'm attempting to do here. Look at it with me. We start here with uh, proven through suffering with Christ. What does Jesus say? He says, I know, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich and the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Notice he uses three terms here. He uses the word tribulation, and then he uses the word poverty, and then he uses the word blasphemy. And the relationship between these, I believe, is tribulation is the general term, and then the specific terms that would have been really at the forefront of the minds of the people there are poverty and blasphemy. So tribulation, let me uh, illustrate that. The Greek term phlipsis, which is always translated as tribulation, in, in, well, at least in this translation of the Bible and most of our translations, it's what some Christians see as the tribulation, is the phlipsis. It's literally the pressing in, the compressing, kind of putting pressure on something. That's what that term means. And what follows then, the poverty and the blasphemy, are the representative features of this pressing and this pressure that the saints in Smyrna would feel. Let me then elaborate on those. Poverty. Why does he say, I know your poverty? Well, in Smyrna, the system was this. You needed to engage in idol worship, particularly of the imperial goddess, Roma, the goddess of Rome. You needed to worship this false god in order to get a few economic benefits. The first being membership in the guilds. If you want to be a blacksmith, boys, you would have had to burn incense to Roma in order to get your blacksmith card, in order to be allowed to work, in order to get permits to work, um, maybe even just to make money or build things, in order to get those state-sanctioned licenses with which we're all familiar now when we do remodeling on our homes, you would have had to make an offering to a false god. Well, of these faithful saints, of whom Christ has nothing ill to say in this letter, if they really are as faithful as we think they were, do you think that they were burning incense to Roma? No, they were not. They weren't bowing the knee to a false god. And so thus, they weren't allowed in the guilds. They couldn't get those licenses and those permits to work. And thus they suffered poverty. I read in the news recently uh, about the National Association of Realtors or something passing a, uh, a new rule for, for those who call themselves realtors. Evidently, you could do real estate work without calling yourself a realtor because you can get a different license. But if you want to have that word, realtor, which is really useful for advertising your work, you need to be part of this national association. They've changed their professional standards. Now, if you say anything, and I think it says this, even in private, which goes against their code whatever that code happens to be in a given year, then you can have your license revoked. Can you imagine how that could be abused against people who disagree with mainstream culture on this, that, or the other thing? And then you have requirements to work on Sundays in most retail and grocery store settings. I had friends in church growing up. It's not like they were strict Sabbatarians or anything, but they would just do a lot of church things on Sundays. And You'd see a help wanted sign at the grocery store and even in high school, they'd go in for the interview and the first question is, what's your availability? So well, I'm available every day of the week except Sunday. All right, then you can't work here, period, end of story. Just because you're not available. Well, that's kind of maybe a, a very light, mild analogy to what the saints in Smyrna would face. 
But it shows you how this relates directly to our lives, doesn't it? There are certain opportunities that are closed to us when we wish to be faithful to the Lord, whatever that means, whatever that looks like. Children, I'll ask this question to you pointedly. How many of you get an allowance? I know a few of you do. And maybe your parents are mad at me for those of you who don't yet get an allowance. But if you do get an allowance, would you lie about God in order to get your allowance? No, I hope not. That is what the saints in Smyrna were being asked to do at, at root. They were being asked to lie about God in order to get their allowance. That's the poverty piece. And then you have the term blasphemy. Notice it's not slander. Blasphemy is always against God. Slander is against other people or God. But blasphemy is against God. However, blasphemy is always united to that slander against his church. If slander against Christians is there, then blasphemy against God is there. It's one of our if-then truths. And who was blaspheming here? Look at verse 9. By those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. The people who are blaspheming God, saying false things about God in order to harm his church, were not laissez-faire secular humanists who wanted to live and let live and just let everyone do their own thing. No, they were religious people. Religious people in town were making fun of, oh, other religious people, people who said they were Jews, who should have welcomed Christ and his glory, are now denigrating and blaspheming the God of the Christians. What did this look like? In Rome, there were two kinds of religions. There was religio lecita and religio illicita. Religio lecita were allowed to do their worship and still be a part of society. And the Jews were given that allowance. They actually didn't have to burn incense to the emperor or to the false gods of Rome. For whatever reason, the Roman authorities figured out it would be good to let them do their thing. And the Christians originally were viewed by the Romans as a kind of Jew. And then the Jews got tired of the Christians and started saying things about them like they're atheists. They don't believe in gods. They eat flesh and blood because of communion. They, they marry brother and sister because the Christians would refer to each other as brother and sister. And so then that blasphemy had direct consequences because then Christianity became outlawed. And when the persecution broke out, it hit the Christians hard. That's what was coming to the church in Smyrna. That's why this is mentioned here. But these Jews, keep in mind, were not... These first century Jews were not thinking like, oh, we're going to destroy these Christians because they have the truth and we're trying to be evil. No, they thought they were doing what was right. And so even when we look around today at the church, we'll look around at different churches and at the church at large, and we'll see that blasphemy, that the persecution of the saints, it comes most fiercely from within our own ranks. We're at each other's throats seeking to destroy ourselves. And when we do that, we're doing violence against the image of God. This should really be a warning to us to keep a close watch on our own hearts, shouldn't it? If we can learn one thing from this, it's that we are all susceptible to the temptation to advance ourselves, to get good things for ourselves, money, wealth, material, possessions, whatever, at the expense of truth. May it never be so. May this be a warning to us 
to be careful in how we speak, lest we become what it says here, a synagogue or meeting house of Satan. But don't miss Christ's point here. That's just a little application. Christ's point is he knows. He knows their tribulation. He knows your poverty. He knows the blasphemy and the slander being thrown at you. He knows the truth. And he's coming to comfort you. Notice what he says. If you have a New American Standard, it's bracketed in parentheses for some reason, but there's no parentheses in Greek. He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And this, my friends, is the truth for the Christian. That no matter what anyone takes from you or what you suffer in this life, if you have Jesus Christ, you are rich in Christ. What was our meditation this evening before the service? Matthew 16, verse 25. What, it's, I think it's worth repeating. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And what did we read in, out of Matthew chapter five there at the end of the Beatitudes? Again, I think worth repeating in this context. The reality of the Christian life is that no matter what we experience, this is not some kind of vain Gnosticism, this is just the truth. No matter what we experience, this holds true. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me, Jesus says. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Later on in that same sermon, Jesus will address anxiety and address your worldly needs, food, clothing, and shelter. He'll say, your father in heaven knows you need these things and he will provide them for you. But his point there is that however deprived you are of worldly goods, however poor you may seem, remember, he didn't have a house. He didn't even have a place to sleep every night. No matter what, your reward in heaven is great if you are sealed up with him through faith. You are rich. This is the truth. This is what Christ knows and makes known to them. And so, their faith, the faith of this church, is proven through tribulation. And it's also proven through fearlessness in our text. Look again at verse 10 with me. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. So the situation is such here that they, they, they would have a warrant to be full of fear, not evacuated of fear. They would have a warrant to be worried about what's happening. But if what Christ said about himself in verse eight is true, then that warrant for fear is taken away. Christ is the Lord of our trials, as we said. And he says in verse 10, then do not fear what you are about to suffer. The faithful church then will operate not in a spirit of fear, but in a spirit of what I call obedient confidence, a spirit of obedient confidence, doing that which we know the Lord requires of us for his sake, confident that he is in control and that come what may, he is pursuing our good and his glory. 
Smyrna had some cause for trepidation in light of the persecution that was coming and the prospect of that persecution getting much worse. And verse 10 uh, continues, Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison. Jesus gets into detail here. So that you will be tested. So that you will be proved. And you will have tribulation for 10 days. What Christ says to them in this verse is very much like what he says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 34. So do not worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. And so the proof of faith then will come through fearlessness in the midst of suffering. Present suffering, however brief, even if just for 10 days, always tests the faith of the church. And now this faith, proven through tribulation, proven through fearlessness, is finally proven through faithfulness. Continuing in verse 10, note the church's faith proven through faithfulness. Christ says, be faithful until death. Be faithful until death. Christ calls the church then here to demonstrate faith through their faithfulness. Now, this is not to say that the church is saved through its faithfulness. By no means. Faith alone is the instrument of our salvation. We receive Jesus Christ, and we rest upon him alone for salvation. And this faith is ever always united to works of love, what we might call demonstrable or demonstrated faithfulness. Children, if you tell your mommy or daddy, I love you, mommy mommy and daddy, and then literally one minute later, go and spill a bunch of cereal on the floor when you know they wouldn't like that. Do you really love your mommy and daddy? Are you demonstrating your love for mommy and daddy by doing that? No. But if you say, mommy and daddy, I love you so much. And then they say, oh, thank you. And five minutes later, they ask you to you know, pick up you know, some toys off the floor or get some trash and put in the trash can. You say, yes, I'd be happy to do that. What are you proving then? You're proving that love. You're showing it to them by your actions. We do that for each other. Certainly, we would do that for God. In Revelation 2.13, Christ will give us an example of Christian faithfulness under persecution in a person named Antipas of Pergamum. And we'll look at him in a couple of weeks the next time I'm in the pulpit, Lord willing. Such faithfulness adorns the way of life like trees lining a handsome boulevard. That's what this faithfulness is. Revelation 12, 11 describes faithful brethren as overcoming Satan because of the blood of the lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even when faced with death. And then Revelation 17, 14 later on describes these same brethren with Christ as the called and chosen and faithful, faithful. The church's faith is proven through suffering, fearlessness, and faithfulness. But where can such faithfulness be found today? Surely you are aware of how weak and feeble our faith is under even light pressure from the world, the flesh, and the devil. But Christ is the faithful one above measure. His resources are inexhaustible, and he's so generous to pour them out on us. So bring to him your requests for aid. Set out your faith as a hand, seeking to receive something from him. For he is faithful to strengthen your faith and to increase your faithfulness in times of need. And he promises life to all those who are his. When I hear accounts 
of missionaries in the field facing what they thought to be certain death, and then they did not compromise, and somehow the Lord delivers them. And they're asked, what gave you that strength? They say, oh, the faithfulness of God gave me that strength. He sustained me. He protected me, not just from harm, but from compromise. Yesterday at our Presbytery meeting, um, one of the officials with our denomination's mission board was giving a presentation, and he said he spoke to a persecuted pastor in another country, a man in prison. And, and uh, the officer said to him, hey, we're praying that you'll be released from prison, that the persecution will come to an end. And the man said, no, don't do that. Don't pray for the persecution to stop. Pray that we would remain faithful. Why would he ask that? Because he knows that we can't generate faithfulness on our own, but it's a gift of God, just as surely as faith is. It's a grace from God. That brings us to our third point, the Christian's living faith. We've seen the church's uh, proven faith, and now we see the Christian's living faith. And life here in uh, the end of verse 10 and into verse 11 is shown as a triumph of faith. Notice what he says, I will give you the crown of life. I will give you the crown of life. This crown, the Greek word Stephanos, that's where we get the name Stephen from or Stephanie. That should remind us of whom? The martyr Stephen in Acts chapter 7, verses 54 through 60. He received the crown of life, what his very name suggested, because he was faithful until death. Abraham, Never owned more than a tomb this side of glory, but he acted on faith that God would give him and to his seed a promised land. His was a life of triumphant faith, though perhaps he had nothing physical to show for it. Moses, he never entered Canaan, did he? But he acted on faith that God would bring Israel to the promised land. His was a life of triumphant faith, though he ever only set his eyes upon that promised land. David, He did not live to see the temple constructed. It's not the temple of David. We call it the temple of Solomon. But he gathered the materials that his son would need to build that temple because he was acting on faith that God would work through his son to build a house for his holy name. His was a life of triumphant faith. But of all these, they all pale in comparison to our Lord, don't they? Jesus Christ set his gaze not on a throne of gold, not on a palace of delights or a pleasure dome, not on human armies for conquest and earthly glory. No, Christ set his gaze on the cross of Calvary. Christ suffered and died to fulfill his father's will. That's what was on his mind every step toward Jerusalem. He was to do the will of his father to win for himself a people for the salvation of men. Christ suffered and died and was laid in another man's tomb. He had even less than Abraham. His was the life of triumphant faith, of which all the others are merely shadows and models and types. His was the life that makes our lives make any sense at all. And that's the contention of a Bible-believing church, that only insofar as what Christ says about himself is true and insofar as what the Bible says he did is true, do our lives make any sense at all. Can you hear it in our text? Can, can you hear the words of comfort which Christ speaks to his servants under pressure? Living men 
Men who are spiritually alive, they hear what the Spirit says to the churches in verse 11. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Living faith, the faith of those who are spiritually alive, removes the sting of death. The Apostle Paul, quoting Hosea 14, 13, can say in 1 Corinthians 15, 55, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? But this is only the case because through living faith, Christ removes the threat posed by the second death. Look at our text. He who overcomes will not be hurt by what? The second death. What is the second death? Well, that's that day of judgment. It is appointed for all men once to die, and then comes the judgment. If Christ Jesus is your Savior... This is what the saints in Smyrna heard. This is what the saints at Antioch hear tonight. If Christ Jesus is your savior, then you shall have eternal life. There will be no second death. Is that if then statement at all controversial? Do you believe it? Do you rest in it? Is there anything uncertain about it? Does it comfort you in the midst of distress to remember That for those who rest in Christ, there is no second death, but only eternal life. What if a time of intense trial and tribulation erupts upon this church in the next month or, or years to come? According to Christ, such would be an occasion for what? For proving the church's faith. Yes, there will be room for sorrow and lamentation and crying out to God for deliverance. I'm not denying that. But the occasion highlighted in our passage tonight will be one for proving the faith of the church. I have sought to show you what this text teaches. When proven through trial, the church's faith in Christ is the Christian's living faith resulting in spiritual triumph. And the point of this, including who Christ is as Lord of our trials and the church's faith proven through suffering, fearlessness and faithfulness and the Christian's living faith is this. That Christ is ever and always present with his church. He is in control. And he promises spiritual triumph to those in possession of his gift of faith. That's the point. We do not know what trials we're going to face this week. We don't even know what we're going to face tonight. You show me someone claiming to be a teller of fortunes and I will show you a fraud. And we'll be pointing at the same person. But Christ would have us to receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he is offered to us in the gospel. And he calls us to lives, not of fear and cowardice, but of courage and triumphant faith. Lives of living faith resulting in spiritual triumphs. Let us pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.